Well, good morning again. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We, we've had some fun. The kids were here super early this morning, um, and they showed up bouncing off the walls. I, I don't... My kids are uh, middle school age now, and so I'm trying to picture back to those years, and it's like, oh my goodness, I can't even, can't even believe it. So uh, a lot of fun with that. I, I don't know if you know this, just as an aside before we get into it, um, we have a little bit of a kid problem that we're going to have to talk about at some point uh, in 2023. Corey, I don't know if you can get me out of this thing. It's, it's getting a little bit goofy, but um, uh, so... Uh, in those of you guys who are familiar with church world, like Easter is the day, right? Like everybody goes to church on Easter. Nobody skips on Easter. So on our biggest Easter Sundays, we would have about 60 kids back there between nursery, preschool, and elementary on a, on a giant Sunday. Lately, that's a normal Sunday around here. Um, we've just got kids all over the place, and we're out of space for them. And so we're working on some ideas but at some point, I'm going to have to get up here and talk about that little problem that we have. And so just be ready for that. At some point, I'm going to say, we got a kid problem, and it's time to fix it. Okay, so just, just want to put that out there. 2023 is going to be uh, really exciting. We've had, I mean, I mean, just all kinds of new young families come in. We've had, uh, as of a couple months ago, we've had a few births, but as of a couple months ago, there was like nine of our young women pregnant. And so... Uh, the nursery is going to be nutso, and my wife schedules the volunteers for that. And so if she just walks up to you crying at some point and says, will you please just hold some babies? Just say yes. Trust me. Say yes to my wife, uh, and things will be well with you. Uh, no, but uh, Christy and John Onnens back there do a great job with our kids, and it is overflowing. And so just really excited uh, about the ones who chose to get up here and, and help lead us this morning. Just, just some good things happening. So um, well, uh, back to our series in Peter. Last week I shared that I had a chance to go to South Africa uh, right before my first year of college as a part of a missions group over there, kind of a short-term team. My first ever short-term missions trip that I was able to go on was my freshman year of high school back in 1997. Um, we went to Guatemala, our high school group did. Um, and I, I mean, just the memory, I was looking through some pictures over the last few weeks as I was thinking about this and just ridiculously fun. I mean, imagine being 14, 15, you get to travel out of the country and you're with all your friends, just a lot of fun, but, but eye-opening, right? Because all of a sudden, new country for the first time. Canada doesn't count, right? And, and new culture. We, we had spent some time in a big city there. We spent some time in these tiny little villages there. And just the impact of realizing, man, God is bigger than I thought, right? He's bigger than my little town. He's bigger than my little school. And just to, to worship with believers around the world, learning. Uh, I mean, we sang uh, that, that old hymn, Holy, 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 except it's Santo, Santo, Santo. And that was the only words we knew from the song. And so we're just belting that out in, in our crazy high school way. And, and, but, but the interesting thing about being there, and those of you who have been on trips like that will, will, will recognize this, as guests, as a group that's there in support, um, sometimes there are concessions that have to be made as, as a part of that group, as a part of going to serve another community, uh, serve another church, especially in a different culture. And so there's, there's times where there's different foods that you should probably try, even though you really don't want to, right? You ask my family, I am not an experimenter. I get the same thing at every restaurant. I, I've got one thing on the menu that I get every time, right? And so if I try something new, it's very rare. Uh, but when you're in another country serving another community, another culture, you try some things you might not otherwise try. Uh, sometimes you have to participate in work that you'd rather not participate in, right? It's harder than you'd like it to be. It's more tedious than you'd like it to be. 
Um, and yet you do it because of the bigger goal of what you're there for. It's not about you and your preferences, right? And there is one thing in particular um, where sometimes you go to these different places and there's a different dress code for different environments that you're going into. And, and one of the things that um, some of my friends were quite upset about was finding out that they, as ladies, would have to wear dresses to church, right? And we were, we were from a, a pretty conservative Baptist church, so it wasn't like crazy, this idea of wearing dresses to church. Some of you guys grew up like that was mandatory, that you, you just had to do it. Um, but for us, you're, you're 15, 16, 17, you're used to kind of wearing jeans or whatever, and you're like, we got to wear dresses to church? Right? And, and, and like it created this interesting conversation between some of my friends and, and our youth pastor. And was like, listen, we're, we're not trying to be jerks. That's just the culture that we're going to be serving for a couple weeks. Right? We're, we're not going there to change the dress code. We're going there to serve a church that's trying to share Jesus with their community. And so in those two weeks, in those moments, these are things that we're willing to do in order to reach the world for Jesus. Right? And those are, in the grand scheme of things, wearing a dress to church, it's not going to ruin your life, right? And yet, it's uncomfortable. It's different. And so there are certain moments in life where maybe we need to stand out in areas where we're asked to stand out. And then there are certain times where maybe we're meant to blend in, where we're asked to blend in. And that's a little bit of where Peter starts to go today when it comes to, you know, because where we've been, if you haven't been with us, the first three weeks was a lot of foundational stuff that Peter gets into. Like, hey, Salvation, right? Eternity, it's secure. What a gift we have in Jesus and the sacrifice he, that he made on the cross for us. We're set apart, right? We're, we are called to be a temple. We're called to be a holy priesthood. We're, we're called to stand in the gap on, on behalf of those who haven't experienced Jesus yet. And in that, we're to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into wonderful light, right? We have a new identity in Christ. We have a new calling in Christ. And in the midst of that, Peter's saying, because of that, there's going to be a tension between you and the world. There's going to be some pushback, right? There's going to be some disagreement. And that tension needs to be navigated with those truths and those new identities in mind. And so today, finally, Peter gets a little bit more practical in, in application of some of that groundwork that he laid uh, early in the, the first chapter and early in chapter 2. So we're going to be back in 1 Peter chapter 2, hitting the second half of that today. So let's hit verses 11 and 12, um, and then we'll be off and running. So he says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, some translations might say aliens and strangers, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds... And glorify God on the day that he visits. So he's, he's kind of reminding him, right? You're, you're different. And he spent a, a chapter and a half kind of establishing that framework. But you're different. And then there's, there's a reason for some of the practical examples he's going to give us next, right? It's because you are chosen. It's because you're set apart. It's because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're foreigners. You're exiled. And that's true for some of them, remember, because they've been scattered by persecution, scattered to look for a better life. And so they're entering these cultures who don't, recognize how they're living. They don't recognize this new faith they're bringing. It's true for them in the world as believers, right? They're citizens of a different kingdom living here on this planet, and that's true for us as well. And so, so the question for us becomes, why the outrage and the surprise when there's tension? Why the surprise when there's issues between us and the world? The answer is because I think for a number of generations here in America, 
American Christians were blessed to live in a country, blessed to live in a society that was at least somewhat accepting of what the Bible said, gave some credence to what the Bible says. Now, that doesn't mean our country always did what the Bible said. In fact, just the opposite. There were times in our country, even now, where horrific things are done and backed up with Scripture inappropriately, or, or things are done in, to manipulate Christians to voting a certain way or acting a certain way because they, they claim the Bible, right? And what it did over some of those generations, I think it created a false sense of how things really are in the world when you're talking about the difference between those who have Jesus and those who don't, those who believe the truth of Scripture and those who don't. There is tension. There is conflict. There is disagreement. They don't know what you know. They don't have the truth. They don't have the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And so what Peter says is he says, because of that tension, there's a couple things I want you to do. I want you, number one, to abstain. Right? So that sometimes that, that's going to mean different things for different people in different parts of the world in different times. But basically, stay away from those sinful things that the world likes to get into. Don't take part in the brokenness around you, which, by the way, is going to be difficult. And that's why he describes it as a war, right? Because there's this constant daily pressure to take part and to conform and to celebrate, usually praying on our own personal weak spots. And it's a war because of the destruction that it does to our lives when we do succumb to the temptation. And remember, this isn't just the big, scary, public sins that they do, right? Remember, we talked about respectable sins uh, later in the fall this year. And, and there's those little, subtle, respectable sins that Christians like to kind of get away with because they're private or they're secret or they're small, right? And, and so it's not just the big things. It's, it's the little things. Stay away from those things that the world wants to take part in. Abstain from those things. But he doesn't just stop with that passive approach. It's not just stay away. He says, number two, in the midst of staying away from what they're doing, live different. Basically, Christians should be the nicest. Christians should be the most patient, the, the hardest working, the quickest to apologize, the quickest to forgive, the quickest to help, the most encouraging, the most reliable, the best listeners, the best workers. Christians should be the most loving, the most, the, uh, the most peaceful, the most patient, the most kind, the most gentle in spirit, right? All the fruit of the spirit that God gives us, we should be the best at those. So stay out of their mess and provide an example of something better. And he says in verse 12, live such good lives that they'll be drawn to Christ. And then Peter says, okay, now here's some, here's some ideas of how to do that, right? And now he starts to provide some practical examples. And some of these are very specific to their world. Like we don't have an emperor, but we can take these principles and apply them to our lives. Now here, I'm going to tell you right now, some of you aren't going to like a couple of these. Some of you, it won't be quite as sensitive because it's not November 2024. If I, took this, if I took this sermon and put it in the next election, election cycle, we would probably uh, eliminate some of our kid problem because some of you guys would leave, right? But, but you're not quite as sensitive right now, so this works out great. We're far from the next cycle, but we'll get into it, and I think you'll see what I mean uh, by some of this. But it's Peter, not me, so it is what it is. All right, let's go 1 Peter 2, 13. He jumps right in. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Remember, he's reminding them of the why, right? This is all about something bigger. It's a greater goal. It's eternity, right? It's the kingdom. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Whether to the emperor, we'll talk about him in a second, 
as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So respect for human government, respect for human authority. It says to silence ignorant talk. So one thing that was happening at this time was because of the Christian faith, that says that, you know, those Judeo-Christian values, there's one God, there's one Savior, we worship Jesus, right? We, we don't worship the thousands of gods represented around the known world at that time. There is one true God, and we follow him. Because of that, there was a claim that Christians wanted to overthrow Caesar. And so you, it's kind of understandable, because if you come into this world where Caesar claims to be one of the gods, to, to be a god, Christians are saying, no, there's one God, we're not going to worship Caesar. There was this significant rumor around the Roman world that this new Christian movement wanted to overthrow Caesar because he's not a God, that God is the one true God. And so, and so Peter says, you need to live in such a way as to refute that claim. Live such good lives that you can silence that ignorant talk of foolish people who don't know what they're talking about. They don't know about your faith. Live such good lives that it refutes that. But you think, okay, maybe he's going too far with this because here's the thing about the emperor. We're talking about likely Nero at the time that Peter was writing. And this is a guy who claimed to be God, or at least a God, out of a line of Caesars who thought that it was, they were part of the deity. Listen to this article that was written about Nero. There's lots of resources. You can find all these things. Just a good, concise description of this leader that Peter is talking about respecting. Nero was enthroned in Rome in 54 AD at the age of 16 and went on to rule for nearly a decade and a half. And he developed a reputation for tyranny, murderous cruelty, and decadence that has survived for nearly 2,000 years. According to various Roman historians, he commissioned the assassination of Agrippina the Younger, his mother and sometimes lover. He sought to poison her, then to have her crushed by a falling ceiling, and then drowned in a self-sinking boat before ultimately having her murdered and disguised as a suicide. Nero was engaged at 11 and married at 15 to his adopted stepsister, Claudia Octavia, the daughter of Emperor Claudius. At the age of 24, Nero divorced her, banished her, ordered her bound with her wrists slit, and had her suffocated in a steam bath. He received her decapitated head. The kids already went out, right? They went back to their classroom. He received her decapitated head. We'll have a different kid problem after this uh, sermon, but <laughs> he received her decapitated head when it was delivered to his court. He also murdered his second wife by kicking her in the belly while she was pregnant. Nero went beyond slaughtering his nearest and dearest. He spent a fortune building an ornate palace only to have it burned down along with the rest of the city of Rome in a conflagration that lasted for more than a week. Nero watched the destruction from a safe elevation, singing of the decimation of Troy. He was famous for never wearing the same garment twice. That's kind of a strange one to mix in with all the other stuff, like, all right, fashion faux pas, all right, we'll add it to the list. Um, and he sought out sexual thrills like a hog snuffling for truffles goes on to describe some of those things. I'll spare you some of those, but says he was attention-seeking, petulant, and arbitrary. He had a senator murdered on the ground that his expressions were overly melancholy. Um, 
It, the, the, it's a strange article that actually goes on to defend him and say maybe some of these negatives are exaggerated, even though every piece of historical evidence we have would say that he's as bad or worse than this, these stories indicate. Um, it do, doesn't even mention the fact that he fed Christians to lions, used Christians as, uh, as uh, uh, fuel for lamps for his crazy parties that he would hold. And so this is a horrific, horrific human being. We're talking about Hitler, if the Allied forces never existed, right? Unchecked, evil power. Uh, he, he eventually got assassinated. Somebody took him out. Uh, and so you, you read Peter, and you're like, Peter, are you telling me to respect Hitler's leadership? No. And you need to know, P Peter eventually got killed for his faith. So there's clearly a limit to how far he'd go to honor and live at peace with immoral leadership. So there is a line to be drawn. But here's what I think P what Peter is saying, and here's what I'd like to suggest this morning, is, is that if, if disagreement gives way to disrespect and a demeaning attitu attitude towards the image bearer who leads your country or state or office, I would suggest there's an area of your life where you're struggling in the war for your soul. There is a line. And yet Peter says, one of the ways that you live in such a way that people are drawn to Christ and what you have is to respect the leadership placed over you, even in the extreme cases. Then in verse 17, he expands this idea of respect and honor uh, to a wider group. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. And again, he says, honor the emperor. And so it's more than just leadership. And he provides a little bit of clarity with the wording that's chosen there. He says, show proper respect for everyone. That about covers it. Show proper respect within the family of believers. Show proper respect for human leadership. But the same way where it says honor the emperor, different translations, instead of saying show respect to everyone, says honor all. Same honor as honor the emperor. Basically means to assign proper value. And so it doesn't say don't agree. It doesn't say you have to agree with this horrific human leadership. It doesn't mean that you have to worship these individuals. It doesn't mean you have to support the things that they do and say. He's simply asking for a consistent, godly heart in your view of all people, in your interactions with all people. Show proper value to those that you interact with, to those who have been placed in leadership over you. Continues on with the next one. Another interesting and difficult topic that he gets into. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. So you think back on U.S. history. You hear, hear that, uh, that slavers back in the day would use Scripture to justify their actions. This is one of those passages where you grab a verse, pull it out, and use it to justify whatever you want. It's something we, we do today in a lot of cases. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps, that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate, but he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep growing astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So he's talking about respect as a slave for a human master, right? And like I said, this, you could, that people would twist this and use it to justify their evil actions. So you need to know right up front, the Bible does not condone slavery, right? At least the, the form that we understand it from U.S. history, right? The point that he's making is based on the reality of the situation that some of his readers were in. Some of his readers were living in slavery, and this letter was not going to change that. And so you think, okay, we want Peter to write these individuals and say, slavery is horrific. You should not be enslaved. The response is going to be, duh, right? Like, I don't want to be in this situation. I would love to be out of this situation. The oppression is unbearable, right? And so they're in this situation, this inhumane experience that humans put other humans in, and this letter was not going to eliminate that situation. So th then it becomes, all right, then how about some wisdom in the midst of it, especially for those who were living under the yoke of slavery and had accepted Christ as their Savior, right? So what, what is there for us? How do we live in such a way as to bring glory to Jesus? Uh, N.T. Wright is one of my favorite authors slash ministers, theologians. Um, and in one of his little studies, he, he addresses this and where Peter is coming from in this particular section. And he says, Peter has glimpsed a deeper truth behind the moral quagmire. He invites followers of Jesus to inhabit Jesus' extraordinary story, to embrace it as their own, and being healed and rescued by those events to make them the pattern of their lives as well. The key to it all is that the crucifixion of the Messiah was the most unjust and wicked act the world had ever seen. Here was the one man who deserved nothing but praise and gratitude, and they rejected him, they beat him up, and they killed him. As Israel's Messiah, and hence the world's true Lord, he alone could represent all the others. He alone could stand in for them. Peter isn't recommending that people remain passive while suffering violence. He is urging them to realize that somehow, strangely, the sufferings of the Messiah are not only the means by which we ourselves are rescued from our own sin, they are the means, when extended through the life of his people, by which the world itself may be brought to a new place. The bigger theme of this section, Peter is talking about the power of living a godly life, even in the midst of the worst possible circumstances. And he's comparing it to the submission and the endurance of Christ in the worst possible circumstances. And he's pointing towards the potential impact of enduring extreme injustice so that some might be saved. Remember week one, we had the rope up here, right? We, we have this short time here on this planet, and we want the gospel to infiltrate our lives, to infiltrate our government and our schools and our families and our workplaces and our justice system, right? And, and social justice, we want the gospel to have an impact on all of those things, and yet those things represent such a small timeline in, in the view of eternity. And so Peter's saying, yeah, I, I, absolutely. It, I, I don't want you, it, please continue to fight. 
Please continue to pray for deliverance. Please continue to live out the change that you want to see in the world. But when you're stuck in the worst of situations, when you're waiting and longing for the deliverance of God, show the world how a Christ follower endures. Show the world how a Christ follower lives for his glory. And then Peter gives a little bit of a side note and says, hey, by the way, you don't need to fake your struggles. Right? There's no credit for enduring trouble that you've brought on yourself. Right? If, if you're a jerk on Facebook and you get flack for it, you're not being persecuted. You're just in a jerk fight. Right? That's, that's all you're experiencing. Right? You, don't, you don't have to elevate your experience to something greater than it is. You're just receiving the consequences of your actions. Right? You don't, let's not create persecution for ourselves. So respect human authority, respect everyone, live in the footsteps of Jesus, even in the midst of horrific circumstances at the hands of other people. And then he continues to the next one. If I haven't lost you yet, I might lose you on this one. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, here we go, right? Here we go. Here we go. In the same way, Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not... Did we lose any? Okay, we're still here. Okay. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who lived, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear." Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. We'll talk about that. And as heirs with you, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So wives, again, we're looking at the theme of the passage, right? We're not going to grab one verse and build our lives around it. We're talking about the overall theme of what Peter is talking about. He's saying, basically, to all of us, what are the weak spots and the dark spots in the world around you? Be the light there and be the light in those ways. Ladies, are you finding that the culture around you doesn't care what you have to say? In their culture, they didn't care. Well, then win them over and influence them by your life and your actions. He's saying to the women of the day, hey, are, are, are the women around you trying to gain attention and influence using their looks and their bodies and their possessions? They were. Well, then you model yourselves after your heroines of the scriptures, who even in the face of broken husbands, go back and read it, they were all pretty messed up. Even in the face of broken husbands, they responded with a godly spirit of gentleness and humility, which, if you read the Bible, is not just a godly thing for women, by the way. Husbands refers to their wives as the weaker partner. I, don't, I know you don't like that, but come on now. He's talking to women who couldn't always own property. There were some there, in the, as, as the Roman world became a little bit more modern, it became a little bit more possible, couldn't always own property, couldn't always be educated, couldn't testify in court, no respect, very little social influence. 
most of them physically weaker than their husbands, right? And so the reality is that those types of circumstances would put anyone at a disadvantage. Those circumstances would make anyone in a weaker position in the world and in a relationship. So Peter's saying, okay, husbands, you're stronger physically. You've got a stronger position of respect in the world. You've got a stronger sense of opportunities to thrive and succeed in the world. So now how are you going to use those advantages? And his answer is, you're going to see your wife not as a lesser individual, but as an equal co-heir with Christ. You're going to honor her. You're going to respect her. Even though your culture says you don't have to. Even though your culture says she doesn't deserve it. Oh, and by the way, he says, if you can't handle that responsibility, don't bother bringing anything else up before God. Because if you can't honor your wife and respect your wife and see her as a co-heir with Christ... God doesn't want to hear what you have to say about anything else. Remember, all of this was extremely countercultural in Peter's day, in, in our day in many cases. So he says, show respect in all ways, right? And some of this is a little bit of a when in Rome situation because as people are living in, in cultures that they have been forced to, to move to, and maybe it's a little bit like our situation in Guatemala, right, where you, you make some concessions of respect and honor in order to achieve a greater goal, be different in ways that are going to make people pause, that are going to make them want what you have. And, and, and all, now all the scenarios start flying in, right? What if this and what if that and what if, what if I find myself in a difficult situation or an impossible situation? What if I find myself in a situation where there's no way out barring a miracle of God? What if I find myself being taken advantage of? What if I'm saved and my spouse isn't interested? What if, what if I work in a situation that's horrific but I can't leave, right? And what if my family situation is horrific but I'm not seeing a way out right now? What if the community I live in is deteriorating around me? What if, what if, what if? Two things, Peter says, to summarize. Number one, fight to keep yourself from taking part in the brokenness. And number two, live such respectful, honorable, godly lives that people take notice and God is glorified, and people are drawn to the way of Jesus because of what they see in you. Is there a practical limit to all this? Of course, right? Do not stay in a dangerous situation. Do not tolerate physical or verbal or emotional abuse at home, on the job, at school, wherever, right? Peter and Paul had limits. They were both killed for their faith. Paul, who said, I'll be all things to all people that I might save some, had a limit because he got martyred, right? Clearly there was places he was not willing to go. And so they drew a line in the sand. This is where I have to stop, and you can do to me what you will. And so there are limits to giving concessions, right? There's limits to what you do physically and emotionally and spiritually in order to be a light to the world. And Peter gets into this a little bit later. As we get into the following, he's going to talk about suffering for doing good, suffering for being a Christian, etc., etc. But if we go back to 1 Peter 2.12, remember the why of all this. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's the why. That's what these practical examples are all about. Couple quick challenges to close. First one and biggest one is this. As you're thinking about how this plays out in your life, right? What are the areas that I need to be different? What are the areas where I need to live in such a way that people see Jesus? I, I would say this. 
I think we need to be the most different and the most diligent in the areas where your world is most broken. Be the most different in the areas where your world is the most broken. The example I'd give you is from Acts 15, where they're getting uh, together for, it's called the Council of Jerusalem, and they're discussing some issues that have come up as the gospel is spreading outside of predominantly Jewish areas. These Gentile cities are experiencing revival, and you're having these Christians who don't know anything about the Old Testament, don't know anything about the Jewish foundations that come along with Christianity. And so they just heard the gospel and believed, right? They're, they're yes, I believe in Jesus. I, I, I want to be saved, right? And so these, uh, the, the predominantly, the, the church leaders of that time were from a Jewish background. And so they're saying, all right, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to get yourself circumcised. And they're like, excuse me? You, you want me to do what? And, and, and they're saying that you, you need to be Jewish first in order to become a Christian, we, have, we carry the foundation. Our scriptures have set the tone, the prophecies, and all these different things. And Paul and others are going, no, 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 that's not what we got. Listen, we as Jews have struggled for thousands of years to live up to these Old Testament laws. How can we ask these people to come in and try to figure this out? We haven't even figured it out. And he says, number two, it's not even about rules anymore. It's about faith in Jesus. And so they spend their time trying to figure out, what what do we do? What do we we tell them? We can't just drop the Old Testament in their lap and say, figure it out, right? So what do we tell these new Christians about how to live their lives? So what they did was they settled on four or five things. These are people who have been saved out of horribly pagan cultures. And so they kept it simple and they kept it specific. They said, don't eat food that was sacrificed to idols, right, false gods. Don't eat or drink blood. Don't eat meat that came from strangled animals. Remember, some of this is cultural and specific, and you know, I'm not saying you can't, I don't know why you'd strangle an animal, but, but if you did, I think you're okay eating it, right? And then they said no sexual immorality, which I think is just kind of the universal issue across time that humans struggle with. But you, you guys know this. Following Jesus is way bigger than those four things, right? There's way more to it than that. And Paul and the others, they weren't eliminating those standards. They weren't eliminating the, the footsteps of Jesus that were to walk in, things from the Sermon on the Mount and other parts of the New Testament. But what they're saying is that in a world where the ramifications of the gospel were slowly spreading across civilization, let's simplify it down to a few key things for them, right? And what were those key things? Those were things that were huge in their world, huge in their specific culture idolatry, horrific sacrifices and rituals, extreme sexual immorality and perversion. And so they said, this is where your world is most broken. This is where your world is the darkest. Go shine your light most diligently in those areas. And it's going to be different for you. It's going to be different for me. It, it depends. Sometimes your extended family is different. Your workplace is different. Your industry is different. It's, it's different at your school, within your state, places that you travel. But basically it's this. Provide the most consistent light in the areas where it's darkest. Be the most diligent. And then I'd say this. I would encourage you, don't make the mistake of thinking you can accomplish all this on your own. If we run with the war idea that Peter throws out in verse 11, you can't win on your own. Or even if you're simply trying to make sense of the practical realities of a godly life in the real world, your own ideas and your own instincts and your own experience and your own decision-making skills simply aren't enough. And so Proverbs eleven fourteen, I love the way the message version throws it out. It says, without good direction, 
people lose their way. The more wise counsel you follow, the better your chances. Lean into the body. Lean in for support and for encouragement, for the shared struggle and shared experiences, for wisdom beyond what you have within yourself, right? Guys, Peter knew that he couldn't change their circumstances with a letter. But he's saying, put your eyes on eternity, right? We, life is a mist. It's, it's a struggle. Fight for change. Fight for justice. Fight for the gospel to infiltrate our daily lives. But keep your eye on the long game, right? It's about eternity. You've been given a new identity. You've been given a new calling. And so live differently for the sake of eternity. Let's pray. God, we love you. And, and as we do more and more of Peter's letters, God, I just thank you for his, just his practical insight. It, it's it's uh, a little nervous sometimes. It's a little crazy as we, as we think about the differences between their culture and our culture and language differences and, and things like that. And yet, God, we can see what he's asking us. We can see what you're asking us through him. And so, God, as we are presented with different challenges, as we face tension, as we face conflict, as our values and beliefs that we claim from you run into, uh, run into pushback from the world around us, God, give us, give us the ability to simply live your light, to be respectful of all, to honor those you've put over us. God, to reflect your light within our marriages and our relationships, our families, God, our workplaces, we would, of course, ask, God, that you save us from some of those difficulties. We, would of course, want to just live in peace with the world around us. But God, when those moments come, may we shine the brightest in the darkest places of this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.